There is only one thing on this earth more powerful than evil, and that's us. Hi guys, this is Claire Kramer, aka the Great Glorificus, and you are listening to the Buffy Back Issue Bed. Welcome to the Buffy Back Issue Bed, the show where we go through all the Buffy and Angel comics that are canon chronologically. I'm Zach. And I'm Emily. And today, since we're in our post-show coverage, we are going to be dealing with our very first interview regarding that thing I can't stop talking about, Angel After the Fall. Today, we are going to be joined by Chris Rael, former editor-in-chief and CCO of IDW, and who just very recently got a new job working at Robert Kirkland's company, Skybound, in the editorial department. So first of all, congratulations on the new position. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me here today. Thanks for being with us. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Just going off, when you left IDW, like, I was... It was really great to see the outpouring from creatives. Just you seem to be one of the most liked guys in comics. It ever. felt it felt good because I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step on your no, just your every, complimenting of me. <laughs> <laughs> everything I saw was just like this is the best guy. We wish him the best. And then it seems like you took like a month off, and then you were right back at it. Yeah, it was it was three weeks, and it's weird because I sort of appreciate how time moves differently. Like. For freelancers when, you know, if they don't hear back from a publisher for a week to the publisher, they're doing a thousand other things and they don't think about that the time has moved that much, you know. But um, for when you're sort of out on the outside of it all, then time moves differently. So three weeks of not working after working for so many years consistently without really any breaks felt long to me. I mean, now that I'm back at work, it, I wouldn't have minded having more time away because <laughs> time away turns out is pretty nice. But yeah, it was it was one of those things where I just, you know, I was eager to get back to it, especially to start something new and, and sort of try something a little bit different after so long at the same place. So, but all of that, you know, I mean, it was, I, I chose to leave because it just, it felt like it was time at this point. But at the same time, it still feels weird to be separated from a place that you've been a part of for so long. Um, so the, the, the praise online and everybody saying really nice things helped a lot. Like that was really nice to hear because, you know, a lot of times you're just, head down working and you don't think about that this stuff sometimes reaches people in special ways and that it really has an impact on them and so you know it was that was very nice very nice uh outpouring of support from people i guess first question off the bat which is probably going to be the broadest question that we have so you were acting as editor-in-chief also editing after the fall and i feel like this has to be a very unique editing experience because you have Brian Lynch, who's your primary writer, and then you also have Joss Whedon, who's doing his own pass on the book. How do you edit a book that has the guy who created this entire world and will probably know the characters better than anyone? Like It just seems like a daunting task as an editor. Yeah, I mean, I think it was important early on to just tell Joss, look, I don't think you've ever understood the characters, and so here's how we're going to do it. And No, I mean, honestly, like, we were completely deferential to the guy. Like, we've been publishing Angel probably two years before, after the fall got going. Um, and, it, you know, it's like Brian tells the story, it first caught Joss's attention when he wrote that Spike miniseries. And he got a copy to Joss just by happenstance, ran into him at a, uh, a local restaurant or something and handed him the comic. And Joss actually, you know, I'm sure people like Joss get handed comics and things all the time. So Brian had no expectation that he'd actually read it. Joss actually read it and then loved the way Brian handled his characters and said, you know, I want to get involved with you. And so so Brian really pitched his story on what he thought after the fall should be. Joss came back with some feedback on, no, well, here's what I had in mind. Here's where this would have gone had the show continued. Here's where this character would be. And so they sort of fine-tuned it. But from there, 
Joss was fully encouraging to the whole thing. And and so, yeah, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of like having to edit either guy and say, you know, this doesn't feel right. I don't think this character would do that or I don't think this would be happening. So it was more, you know, maybe fine tuning of particulars. But there was there was never any sense of or feeling that like, wow, I have to tell Joss that I don't think his direction here is a good one because, you know, his and Brian's instincts on the thing were so spot on. Like it was I enjoyed the Angel comics before that, but that's when they really took on a life of their own and really felt like their own thing. And just that was a really magical sort of special time for me working on comics. I kind of feel like you're underselling yourself right now because every time I saw like <laughs> um, Brian or Joss talk about the book, like your name was always brought up and uh, you know, unfortunately, editors' roles are usually underplayed, but you always seem to be at the forefront of the conversation. Which is very nice of them, but you know, I would never, I would never presume to try to take credit from the actual creators on the book. Like it, it was great being part of the team and to bounce around ideas and you know maybe suggest a thing here or there. But this was this was their show, and I was just there to sort of help facilitate and sort of orchestrate i guess um you know just all the different pieces coming together and then work with the artist and color you know just to get all the the sort of nuts and bolts of the comic production done but yeah i mean i i mostly just tried to enjoy what they were doing and stay out of the way too much and like i I always find the best way to edit comics is to to not try to lord it over anybody you know like I've, i've seen that in the past where where sometimes people will just try to establish that they're in charge and they'll make changes just for the arbitrary sake of you know, showing that they have the power to do that. And that I just don't think that ever leads to good collaboration. So my whole thing is like, if you put the right people on a book, and certainly Joss and Brian are the absolute right people, you know, I don't need to get in the way or try to try to slow down the process or hinder what they want to do. It just sort of it just happened really naturally. And Brian was Brian was just such a master on the thing. Like he hadn't written many comics before that other than some of his own. And just his his, you know, play with dialogue and his ability to sort of you know, some of those issues are really wordy, but they don't they don't read as wordy and they don't and they just feel like the interplay between the characters is so genuine and everything that he just did such a great job of not only telling the story, but giving all the characters their moments. And, you know, just just I think his skill as a screenwriter really, really paid off on this because the dialogue in that book is just so good. Yeah, I mean, it was fun to read because I you could just hear all the characters voices in your head as you're reading it. Um, You actually what? Oh, no, I was just going to agree with you like that. That's sometimes the biggest problem with licensed comics is the dialogue. If you don't hear the character's voice when they're when they're when you're reading it on the page, then it just falls flat. Yeah, 99% of the time, and this is a generalization that I'm making, but it's usually awful with licensed <laughs> books. But after the fall, like rose well above that. Oh, yeah, it was great. Um, you actually uh, kind of touched on something that I was wondering is how much of the of after the fall incorporate stuff that Joss wanted to do had his show continued. Um, and you said that some of the ideas were in there were, was it a yeah, lot of that or was it a lot of Brian or it was, so they got together and just had breakfast and just sort of bounced around. And Josh said, here's what I had in mind. And Brian goes, well, here's what I think these characters would have been doing. And they just sort of kicked it back and forth like that. So I don't, I don't know that I have any specific examples where Josh said definitely, you know, this character would have headed in this direction ultimately, but, but it was, yeah, I mean, certainly that was the starting point. And then, um, you know, Brian said, well, what if this happens? And Josh said, yeah, that's good, but this should happen too. Or, or he just took it in another direction from there. But, you know, at, at the point of the actual script writing, like they'd talk through the story and then Brian was, uh, Brian was doing the full scripts and everything. Joss would then just take a look and make sure that it all jive. But, you know, he was the sort of the same way as me where he wasn't, he wasn't stepping on anything. He might just suggest a thing or two here or there. Um, but, you know, this was in large measure just Brian and Franco's show more than anybody's. 
How did you guys actually get Joss involved with the book? Because like you said, you were publishing Angel Books for a couple of years before. Buffy debuts, it's in a top ten book the month that it comes out, and then Angel comes out, which sells a kind of crazy number of 47,546. Yes, I did my research <laughs> for <good>. issue one, <laughs> which at the time I believe was IDW's highest selling book. I'm not sure if anything has even surpassed it since then. But how did you guys get Joss actually working on this canonical uh, continuation? Yeah, funny. Weirdly, My Little Pony, I think, is now the the best selling <laughs> single issue that IDW's ever done. Um, know, that's the yeah, first book I like, sold at my shop. The very yeah, first sale I had was a My Little Pony book. <laughs> Good. So we're forever linked. <laughs> but um, it was funny because, and I actually think we might have gotten over 50,000 on the first issue of Angel after second printing and such, um, which was, yeah, that was. That was great because that, that was unheard of for IDW at that point. And, you know, when we first started doing Angel, it was like you, you do feel presumptuous on these things if you do books and the creator's not involved. So we were like, here's Gun. He has an eye patch. So things might have gone to hell or maybe other things happen. Like try not to tell the story, you know, post season five. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, you always have that in mind. Like, oh, man, I would love to I would love to have Joss get involved in this. I'd love to see, you know, what he would do with this thing. And then you know, it just doesn't happen. And the, the licensing people at Fox go, no, no, Joss stepped away from this. He's onto Firefly and his other things. He's too busy for this. He doesn't want any involvement in the comics at this point. On and on. And then, so, you know, you sort of give up on the official channels because more often than not, official channels never work. You know, you'll get to somebody's people and the people yeah. go, well, Mr. Whedon doesn't have time for this without ever actually asking him. So just like the the weird luck of Brian happening to go into a place uh, in L.A. for breakfast and seeing Joss there and then Brian sort of getting over his initial reticence to bother a person yeah at breakfast um you know i think that was that was it and then joss reading the book and seeing that brian nailed the voice is like joss came to us like joss dropped us a line said no kidding. hey I, I would like to do a book with this guy brian like this guy really gets it and so we go Nah, we have other plans joss we, <laughs> we're, we're, this isn't gonna work um you've moved on so we've moved on no i mean like to get that that email um just showing up out of the blue and it's joss whedon saying i want to do this with you and i'm finally ready to tell the story of what season six would have been and i want to do it with brian we're like holy crap um okay that's crazy. It's not what season six would have been. Because, I mean, you guys got to deal with uh, with Franco Uru dealing with the idea of like no budget. But what I love about the book is that it walks this very fine line between going like too big but still staying character focused. I sort of doubt that had they done it on TV that the dragon would have <laughs> been as big a part of the show. But I but, love uh, the dragon. It's like my favorite part. Uh, the dragon was so good. And Franco made him like so expressive and everything. Like, I loved it. Um, I guess kind of spinning off of that, how did the creative team get picked between Brian Lynch and Franco Aru being the main series artist? I know other guys came in like Stephen Mooney, but how how did those two guys get picked? I met Franco originally through David Messina, who was the original yep. angel artist that we had. You know, he launched the series for us at IDW and that was he and I sort of came up at IDW right about the exact same time. Like he was hired by Jeff Marriott, who was the previous editor in chief, but that was really his first work, and so we got to know each other really well, and then um, I got to know through David a lot of the other Italian artists that he works with, and Franco is one of those people, and Franco was just such a fan of the show and just so just so 
great to work with on this thing. Like he and Brian hit it off instantly and me and Franco got to be really close. And it was just, like I say, you work on a lot of different books, um, especially over the 14 years that I was there, but they, very few of them have like every piece just sort of coalesces in such a way where, you know, it was just, it was just such a great time. Like me, Brian and Franco were such a team and we talked pretty much every day. Like I spent more time with them than I probably did with my family that entire time. Um, and just got really close. And so, so that, you know, ultimately, like when, when Franco passed, um, it was really hard because even though he lived in Italy, like I still saw him pretty frequently, you know, at conventions and things like that. And so it was hard for Brian and I both to lose a guy like that because he was just always so enthusiastic and eager. And he became part of the team where it wasn't just like a writer handing down scripts to an artist to draw. It was Franco going, well, what if we did this? And what if we set it in this setting? And what if, you know, the characters wearing this and doing this? And it sort of helps change the direction of the story a bit, too. So the only thing, like, if I have any regret over the whole thing, it's that I didn't find Franco a good colorist for the first year or so. Um, uh. He just wasn't crazy about about the coloring. It, it just didn't necessarily suit his art style. Um, so yeah, we even, went through some... I'm sorry? I was going to say, even the first um, trade, we, like we, there was a coloring switch that, I know that uh, we saw between like, Gunn's sweatshirt just to make it more identifiable as Gunn. Yeah. Going from like yeah, a blue to a red. Right. Because I, 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 mean, I read the first issue day one, and I remember like I had to read it a second time and be like, oh, that's Gunn. And then when you saw it in trade, I'm like, yeah, it's clearer now. So so here's a little bit of inside information about, um, <laughs> about issue one. <laughs> It was our biggest print run, right? It was like the yeah. biggest thing that and IDW celebrating the fact that it was like by far the best selling book we'd ever done. And so as sometimes happens in printing or publishing, um, there was a big printing error in issue one. So we had to scrap the entire first printing of the oh, no. book. Um, <laughs> I've never heard that. Technically, yeah, we, we kept that pretty quiet. <laughs> and so it was like it was like the most profitable book the company had done at that point. And like, oh, we just found a way to sort of eat into that profit in a huge way by having to scrap everything and start over. Um, so that was a bummer. Yeah. Um, and I forget what the specific printing was. I think it might have been a big spread was repeated or and the, the dialogue on one page got turned off. Um so yeah, there's there's occasional things in in publishing where just like it forever sort of I won't say taints because I love the book, but it was just like there's things that forever stick in your head where it's like oh yeah, that was great, but also that bad thing happened. Makes it a good story. <laughs> and not at the time, but I guess in hindsight. <laughs> yeah. So you said that Franco owners, was a huge fan. Oh, sorry. I was just saying the owners didn't love it. But oh no, I bet I, not. Yeah. <laughs> So you said that Franco was a huge fan. I know that Brian was a huge fan. Were you a fan of Angel before, after the fall and Angel became an IDW property? It's funny. I was. So I, I was a big Buffy fan. I, I watched season one of Angel and it didn't fully grab me. Um, but then I came back for season five and I was like, holy crap, like this is everything me as a comic book fan loves. Like it's basically the Avengers, you know, I so that was when I was really feeling it. And then it went away. And so. But then to be able to sort of help bring it back um, was was really gratifying because I did. I love those characters. I wasn't really ready to see them go. And like I, I really love the idea of, of, you know, seeing what would what Illyria would have gone on to do post show and that kind of thing. And so. So, yeah, that was that was all really exciting for me just to be able to sort of revisit and, and take my favorite season of the show and then, you know, extend it and keep it going. Oh, yeah. Hey, what you guys do is so season five is so episodic, but you guys did like this whole sprawling thing. Like there's no break in there. No, we figured, well, you know, if, if 
things are as dire and apocalyptic as as they were heading toward at the end of the show, then yeah, that that should be the thrust of the storyline. It it felt weird to try to do because we talked about that sort of taking the the general Buffy and Angel approach of the you know sort of single episodes while there's still an overarching uh, season story being told. But we thought, well, now this is bigger than that. This is like everything has fallen and it's you know it needs to be a big you know eventful storyline. So. That's yeah. That's what it became. One of the things I'm curious about because I know there's one example of it. How much did the book change based on fan reaction? I know there was a change from like Spike's harem of women from like bikinis to full leather like battle armor. <laughs> was there anything else like that? No, and even that like that was always Brian's intent anyway. Was to go that route. It was sort of just him showing that Spike was sort of aimless at that point. Didn't really know what to do with himself. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I people didn't sometimes people react to a thing at the start without sort of seeing how it all plays out, um, which I get because you're reading these, you know, an episodic monthly issues. So, but, but yeah, that was probably the first little bit of sort of negative feedback we got from people. But overall, like I'd say the, the thing I, I remember most about like the fan reaction to this thing was so many people, just like hundreds and hundreds of people that we heard from that had never really been comic book readers, but they were, such fans of the show and so they picked this up and then that sort of opened their eyes to comics and got them reading other comics and just like they became part of the team and so brian and i would do these you know meetups at at comic conventions with the fans and there were fans in germany who would write every week and send you know i don't know baked goods and stuff that they made and it just (laughs) it became like it became like this this almost commune of like as we went you know at first it was you know the creative team and as we went along you know a few fans came along with us and then suddenly more and then you turn around and look behind you and there's thousands of fans that are suddenly part of the family and it it just it just kept growing and growing in that way and so it also reminds me just like that was a time when i don't know if maybe just the the circumstances of my job got busy or something but it it became harder and harder to sort of interact with the fans to that degree you know we hired more editors and editors ran point up for the books than i was but at this time like we were all so able to fully interact with everybody um on podcasts and conventions and just sort of in general at meetups and stuff like that. It was great that the fans were felt like as big a part of the book as, as you know, the creative team and as Joss. And then, you know, along the way, some of the actors who were involved with the show got, got involved with the comics. And so it's just, this thing just kept becoming this bigger and bigger group of uh, people who all love the same thing, which is, that's kind of the dream of all of these kind of projects. One of my favorite fakeouts is within After the Fall when um, Franco released the image of Angel as a vampire, like after issue one dropped, something along those lines. It's been a while since, you know, that happened yeah. in my world. I mean, well, I won't say we weren't above, I won't say trolling the fans, but <laughs> we, 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 we weren't above, you know, playing with them a little bit and sort of trying to misdirect here or there, because that was also part of the fun of them, you know, thinking they know exactly where things are going and, and usually not. And so then we would sort of try to, just help edge that a little more into confusing things a bit. So they, you know, stay engaged and make sure that, uh, that things were rolling out either the way they expected or in a ways that they didn't expect. Yeah. I, yes. Um, cause I read these after they were already in trade. And so Zach would, he would ask me at like various points and he's like, what do you think? What do you think's going to happen? What do you think right now? <laughs> and I'd be like, I, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm going to flip the page, read the next issue. And he's like, no, but I had to wait a whole month. What do you think's going to happen? <laughs> yeah, that was the that suffering was, that was of the, the whole month. Of it. Just, yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing I loved was just trying to, uh, just you know, the thing with, like just keeping people engaged and try to keep them guessing and keep them wanting to turn pages, like you say. Oh, yeah, definitely. 
All right, so I have the most thrilling question of your entire career prepped. Like, All right, fire away. <laughs> yeah, you've, yeah, you've seen it. That's why you're laughing at me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> intellectual property, the most, you know, fun topic. How does the Buffy IP work in terms of After the Fall? Because there was a couple of references. You had a few characters cross over, a few locations like the Lone Shark and Double Meat Palace. And, you know, Buffy's fist versus actually getting the full reveal of, you know, Sarah Michelle Gellar, who I'm sure would have had to have been paid for that. Uh, how does the IP work for you guys? Or how did it work at that time? We just cheated. Easier not to ask. Well, we had no rights to Buffy at that point. And at that point, like the, the relationship with Dark Horse then was sort of odd. Um, there were people like certainly the editor at the time, Scott, was not happy that Angel left um, Dark Horse and ended up at IDW. And so because yeah, so you can't if you guys yell are pulling at your those boss, numbers, yeah. you know, he, um, I think he sort of took out his frustration on the company no longer keeping the rights to Angel on us. And so it was like this weird sort of contentious, fractious thing. And so, you know, we were like, well, we could ask for permission to try to do this or we could ask if we can get away with this. Like, they're never going to allow it because they don't want us publishing this. And then certainly once Joss got involved and, and it became this really big thing, they were even more not happy with the fact that we were doing it. And so we just thought, well, let's just throw it in the book. These things all have to go through Fox, who, you know, ultimately owns the property. And if they approve it, then, hey, you know, we got away with it. And, you know, <laughs> if, if anybody gets mad, then we go, well, look, the, blame the licensor. They approved this thing. But it certainly helped having Joss as a part of it. You know, there wasn't it was very unlikely that anybody at another publisher or at Fox was going to push back and say, no, Joss, you can't have this cameo or this anything like that that you might want in your book. So Joss's presence allowed us to uh, sort of get away with things. And, you know, we we did them in like playful manner or things that hopefully helped enhance the story and everything like that. And so, you know, we weren't we weren't doing anything that would affect or hurt what they were doing, hopefully. No, that's I love the screw up mentality. I know that's my favorite answer that you could have given. <laughs> we're just gonna do it's it. It's like that whole thing of like ask for forgiveness later, right? Oh, oh yeah, definitely. I go through that constantly as <laughs> a small business. Um, so I guess I'll jump ahead a little bit because I think we'll segue well into it. So Joss eventually brings everything back to Dark Horse, who originally had the property and gave it up for some reason. Oh man, um, this just took a dark. This just took a dark turn. <laughs> Sorry. Um, was there any conversation about keeping the book at IDW? Because I mean, I as much as I love the stuff that happened at Dark Horse because they had some great creators on it, but I mean, following up from like the after the fall stuff, I'm like, yeah, I don't really want to see it go. Yeah, yeah, we would have liked to keep it. Um, there were still more we wanted to do. Like as long as Brian wanted to write it, I was still interested in publishing it. Um, and even then, I feel like you know, there's certainly other directions that things could have gone, but at a certain point, everybody wanted to just consolidate under one roof. And the Buffy deal was a long-term thing that wasn't going away. So it just made sense for, especially where they want to take Buffy and what they want to do with Buffy and, you know, needing Angel as a part of that storyline, you know, cause they needed, they needed Angel to really pull off their big sex issue and all of the stuff that they did in that, the Buffy comics after it Come left. Um, that's hilarious. They had <laughs> sex in space, which makes no sense. And I love the whole, just ridiculousness of it. It it was, yeah. But <laughs> the funny thing was like, because I kept, you know, I was reading their stuff too. And for like the first year or year and a half after after they got Angel back, they kept referencing and publishing letters in the letters page of, of fans saying uh, how much they love the AEW stuff or how much Buffy and Angel don't necessarily 
recapture what was going on at IDW. And I was like, that's weird and sort of gracious of them to run those kind of letters because I don't know that I would have done that. I don't want people saying, hey, the other guy's stuff is better than yours. But yeah, it, and then, you know, the happy ending of it all was like Dark Horse and IDW all got friendly with each other and everything was fine. But it was, yeah, it just at the start, it was weird when uh, when they were so anti anything we were doing because they wanted to be doing it, which, you know, I get it. Like that's sort of the, the spirit of competition to it all. They also gave up the license. So, you know, screw them. That was my point. It was like, we didn't take it. Like we, we didn't, we didn't break into your house in the middle of the night. Like you guys stopped publishing it. You didn't care about it. Uh, you let it go. Fox brought it to us. We proved that it was viable. And suddenly you're like, oh, that, that thing is cool again. We want it back. Like, <laughs> yeah, now that it's making money, yeah. we want it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's also, that's also how comics seems to work. Yeah. Nobody yeah. wants a thing until it works. Then everybody wants that thing. So this is a story I've told about 9,000 different times on the show. I've me, heard it in person. You gave me probably, a look so quickly. <laughs> you know, at least four times that. Oh my god, um, this again. <laughs> I yeah, know. Yeah. It happened once, get over it. Um, <laughs> in uh, 2009, I was at the New York City Comic Con where there was the IDW panel, which was heavily focused on Angel, and there was a discussion about Spike Season 1, which never really happened. It was just that eight issues. Um, I'm kind of curious what the overall plan was for that. Um, God. I don't know if I remember any specific storyline plans at that point. Um, Sorry, I'm asking a nine-year-old question. <laughs> well, most of the stuff sticks in my head really well, like because just because, like I say, it was such a it was such a sort of special time and, and special run. But for some reason, I don't I don't recall what uh, what that was going to be beyond what it became. Um, I know that ultimately, like Brian, what Brian wanted to do was sort of keep you know all the other characters, Betta George, and all the others that he brought into the Spike series. He wanted those to um, to sort of go on and become their own thing. In fact, we even talked about after Angel and Spike left IDW, like, is there any way we could use those characters? Can we use back and Beta George and all these other characters that Brian created and make it its own book? But then and we might have been able to get away with that, too. But then that got a little more complicated because technically Fox could claim ownership over them because of, uh, you know, because they first appeared in a a book that Fox owned. And so we thought, well, okay, let's not do that. But I mean, there were, so there were other stories we wanted to do. And uh, Brian had other, I think he had more spike plans beyond, you know, what he did than he did really with angel. Cause spike, you know, spike's always been kind of the more interesting character, especially with the team around him. Um, so there's more he would have done there, but yeah, I don't, I don't specifically remember the plan for uh, what year one would have been. I would have loved having more Beta George. Yeah, I love Beta George. We, we both love that. So I was, I was yeah. so sad. So sad when, you know, I got to the end of it and Zach was like, well, that's it. That's all the Beta George. And I was like, what? Well, I, know, I know. I was I was very upset. To me, that felt like the most Brian Lynch character. I'm like, this is just Brian talking. Oh, yeah. It's like Brian's pure id right there. Yeah, just as a fish. And then I was not? just like, okay, Dark Horse, you got Angel back. Like. I encourage you use these characters, please, like to keep them yeah, alive. But then they're great. also oh, don't because I don't know that they would have been able to voice them as well. But no, it wouldn't have been the same. But I do miss Beta George. Yeah. Um, one of the strangest parts of the um, after the fall stuff, and even a little bit beyond that, is you guys got John Byrne. Just how? How did you guys get John Byrne on this? Oh, it's funny. Like one of the first things I did at IDW was like reach out to all the people that I that I loved. You know, growing up, like just people that I was pure fans of. And so I knew John wasn't doing a whole lot at that point. Um, I think he'd left DC. And so I just wanted to find a way to work with John Byrne. And John goes, yeah, thanks for asking, but I I have no interest in likenesses. Like I started out doing likeness work like way back. 
I don't ever want to do likeness stuff. I'm not good at it. And I said, well, why don't you just do me a cover? Do me just a, do me just one cover. And he did a cover. That's pretty good, John. Like that's like, as far as likeness work goes, that's not bad. Um, and so then I pushed him on doing a little bit more. And I, what if you do a short story? And then suddenly, as John does, like when he gets interested in something, because he's a huge fan of the show. And so he saw that there was going to be room to potentially do more. And I think he got over his aversion to doing likenesses and just wanted to tell a story. And then we both got to know Mark Lutz, who played, who played Gru. Um, and so Gru really wanted to send off, you know, his poor friend, Andy. And so we thought, well, let's tell a final Lauren story. Like, let's let's give Lauren the send off that he deserves. And so John really wanted to be involved in that. And so, yeah, I mean, it was it was one of those things like almost every project I did with John started out with him being resistant and then him saying, well, let me just do a very small piece of it. And then suddenly the next thing you know, he's doing a full series or a full this or that. Like, so he started with uh, the short story with Brian in, I think it was issue seven. Um, Sounds about right. Yeah, there was, there was a, uh, and Brian wrote like a, a, a ballad in the, in the thing. And then John rewrote a bunch of it. Cause he thought, you know, here's, he has a better handling of iamic pentameter and that kind of thing. And Brian <laughs> loved, you know, Brian loved the fact that John rewrote his stuff and made it better. And then, um, yeah, he did the, uh, the Lauren one shot. And then from there he kept pitching angel stories. He goes, well, what about, what about angel meeting Dracula? What about the, what about that? And so, I was just happy whatever he wanted to do to uh, sort of encourage that. I think the Lauren Ballad, Ballad was my favorite thing in all of all of the IDW stuff, all of everything. I think that was my favorite thing. It was great, yeah. Like I say, Brian wrote the first draft, and then John just sort of punched it up, and so suddenly they're suddenly they're Simon and Garfunkel. Oh no, it was great. I loved it. <laughs> yeah. You got caught up so up in like just the phrasing of it, and I got it was so, so caught fun. up. I'm like, it's John Byrne. John Byrne's doing Angel. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, which, which sort of started like a good twelve-year working relationship with the guy. So that was that was fun. That was like a lot of great things came out of this whole Angel run. Kind of looking back on everything, what are some of your favorite or favorite memories of working on that title? I mean, I think the first thing until I saw the printing error was like getting an advanced <laughs> copy of issue one. It was just like, God, we actually pulled this thing off because Brian was a friend. Um, I really wanted to work with Franco and then we wanted to do this thing with Joss and it was just like, there's no way this is all going to actually work out. We're never going to actually be able to do this thing. And then, so getting that first issue and just knowing that it was real and knowing that we were going to do a thing that, that, you know, the fans have been wanting to see and just that came together as nicely as it did. Like that was, that was a great feeling. Um, and then that it was one of those feelings where it wasn't like a high that then drops off and then suddenly it's status quo again. It was just like, sort of a sustained great feeling throughout you know brian would suggest this and like what if we do the movie version of what uh you know when when we did the angel annual yeah, and then how did Steven that Moody happen did. that was oh, yeah. literally our last episode was we were going like how did this come about like about was that something that was just like hey wouldn't this be fun or was there like a fan reaction that said like yeah let's make it a bigger thing it was so Mooney was really good at doing these these jam covers that sort of felt almost like movie posters and so brian goes why don't we do what the movie would be, you know, if if there was a movie made of this and, you know, cast it with just sort of the ridiculous uh, type of actors who might play, you know, Nicolas Cage and whatnot. Um, yeah, because what was so, it? Nicolas Cage, Cameron Diaz, Jorge Garcia. I have no idea who Fred was supposed to be. That, I have um, no idea. Yeah, God, I'd have to go back and look. I don't I don't remember off the top of my head at this point. But but yeah, it was just that. It was just Brian. Like, what? You know, we, we were dark and <laughs> serious, you know, and I mean, there was. Yeah, yeah. 
and there was humor throughout the book because Brian can't help but writing, you know, funny dialogue. But at the same time, like there was there's a lot of bad things happen in that book. So we're like, let's just have some fun. Oh, yeah, it was great. It was very fun. Yeah, um, what do you think the peak I've, going back? I think I can't remember. It's 15 or 16. The issue that Connor dies, I think, is one of the tightest issues of comics just in existence. There's no wasted space with dialogue, no wasted space with art. It's just, it's tight and it flows so well. Um, for your perspective, what do you think was kind of the highlight of it? Um, I think the highlight is that we made people go, huh, Connor's not awful. Um, That's what I've been saying. No, Emily disagrees with you. <laughs> I don't love Connor. <laughs> I, I, like, he's I like him a lot. You hate him. To love. I don't love Connor. I don't. But no, and you're right to not love Connor. So that was yeah. part of our goal. Was like, well, how do we make this character who nobody likes on the show? Like, is there? Can we actually make him likable? And so I, I, I feel like him. Brian did as good a job as that as. Possible. Oh yeah, definitely. So, that was the closest I've ever come to liking him. But yeah, I yeah, not my fave. Uh, I no, mean, one of the things I that, I, <laughs> that I loved that you guys did was the so rarely used appearance of Cordelia. Like when she comes back, that's such an emotional gut punch. Um, yeah, and I was trying to think if we wanted to get to her earlier or not, because um, there was initial plans on, yeah, like, how do we bring her back? What do we do with her and stuff? And so, yeah, I think, I think again, that just came out of the Brian and Joss kicking around, like, what's the best way to actually bring these characters back in so it's not forced, so it feels, you know, important and portentous and everything. And, and yeah, that one worked really well. I I will admit I wasn't as crazy about uh, the Drusilla stories, um, but I think maybe that's because behind the scenes there was some... There was a lot of drama in pulling those issues together, and so they were were good. But yeah, I think sometimes like the the behind the scenes um, colors you're you're feeling about a thing. Wasn't well, yeah. that like Brian Lynch reached out to her on MySpace? You know that topical reference, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, yeah, and and she had very specific and you might say intractable ideas on on how the story should play and everything. And and so yeah, I mean you know sometimes hmm. people don't mesh as well as as other people mesh as i am i saying this like politely enough yeah, oh, no. yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no. Definitely. I, I think i think she wanted to write it herself um you know without well, anybody else in the way we're like well no this is brian's book i brian doing this and so we'll have you guys do it together but you know some some people want to be duos and some people want to be solo acts i guess I, yeah the only reason it's giving me a little bit of an eyebrow raise is i know that dark horse had a five issue mini um that went to solicits with her and then never happened. I won't ask follow up yeah. questions, but it's just giving me a slight eyebrow raise of like, is that why that never came about? I, like the, not, I know that went as far as solicits. Yeah, I wasn't completely surprised that that series didn't come out. Um, but you know, like things things happen, and sometimes things happen. And I'll just, I appreciate I'll your coyness. Like so I don't say anything else. Yeah. Oh no, this is a very diplomatic. No, You're doing okay. a good job being very diplomatic. Believe me, I want specifics, but I'll, let's go with coyness. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll need to stop by your shop or something like that. When yeah. Come on up to Maine. Um, I guess to kind of sum everything up, what are your feelings on the book as a whole? Cause I mean, you had at this point, like 14 years with IDW, you're continuing on now with Skyward. How does IDW, or I'm sorry, how does After the Fall kind of rank in your career? It's funny because I, I never really look back because you're doing so many books every month that like it's impossible to sort of reflect on anything. You just keep like a shark. You just keep moving and keep the books <laughs> hopefully coming out on time. But then like while I was off, um, I did a, I actually did a podcast and they, people, somebody asked me like, what were your highlights? And I go, man, I hadn't really thought about them but i mean if i did and when i was thinking about it like after the fall lock and key and then 
you know, I didn't work on them directly, but but the Parker books with Darwin Cook are probably the three the three things that I'm most proud of, like seeing come to life while I was there. But I think oh, those are all great then, books. Yeah, and just like the experience with the creators um, of Lock and Key, and then the Angel, and then honestly, my the different things I did with John Byrne. Those are all the things, and Rom. Um, those are the things that probably stand out to me the most over everything else because it was just like there are just these times when the the team on a book and the relationship you have with them and just sort of the friendship and camaraderie and everything else that goes into it just takes on a life of its own and becomes something so much bigger than just people putting a book together. And so like I will always and forever think of those books in, in sort of a like almost familial sort of way i only ever have one gripe with lock and key and just because the joe hill is from maine which is where we're based out of and they have that book in massachusetts i'm like how dare you <laughs> how dare you <laughs> be based he, in massachusetts he need, he needed the setting though too and i think the other thing was like if he puts it in maine and people go oh great was it next to dairy is it next to castle rock <laughs> I, needed, I know i know a little bit of distance from the family the smallest amount of distance yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. i know but yeah, i was just like massachusetts it, really it, you can just put the two states up <laughs> That, that was only my ever gripe with Lock and Key. I'm like Massachusetts. <laughs> well, it needed it needed the drowning cave, and it needed that sort of uh, the setting, like that. Because we did we did when we were in Boston, we went and visited the actual setting. We're like, okay, well now I see why like why it was set right here. But mm. but I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, that is the smallest of gripes because it's a great book. <laughs> like, come on, just just do the thing your dad did. Bring it to Maine, right? <laughs> Well, maybe that at some point would need a like a lock and key and Castle Rock crossover or something, assuming both those shows get going. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, because Castle Rock's sometime this year, and yeah, hopefully the lock and key one gets kicked off. Yeah, boy, that w- that would work much better as a TV show than it would a movie, or possibly Definitely better agree. as a comic than it would a TV show. Crazy thought. I certainly agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> I am one minute away from opening my store, so yeah. Um, thank you very much for coming. I I love talking after the fall. As <laughs> anyone yes. who listens to the show knows. That is very and true. I mean, so do I. Like, like I say, it, it does. It looms large in my uh, my IDW life. Like, it, it means a lot to me. So yeah, I love that you guys. I love that you love it as much as you do. And so I really appreciate you talking to me about it. Well, thanks for talking to us. This is awesome. Oh, you bet. No, thank you uh, very much for coming out. I guess our show will be back next month with something. Yeah, we haven't decided yet. Sounds good. <laughs> um, um. Yeah. So I guess we're done uh, again. But just personally, thank you very much. It was very nice talking to you. And okay. It's such a good damn book, and I, you were so closely tied with it. It was great talking to you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and if cool. you're ever up in Maine, come say hi. <laughs> yeah. If you're ever on the other side of the country. Well, this is this is sad, but I was just in New Hampshire. Um, oh, you were? Out visit, seeing Joe like two, three weeks ago. Oh, no That's so funny. Well, but we're, he... up, we're up by Augusta, so if you're ever up in the middle of Maine, <laughs> All right, stop I, I think by. Because they've been trying to get me to go to show up there, and then um, really? Izzy Skelton, who makes all the... Uh, he runs Skeleton Crew Studios, who makes all the lock and key replica keys. Yeah, yeah I know exactly. He's, he's been in here. I know exactly what you're talking about. So, yeah, I, I got friends out that way. So, I, I wish I'd known when I was in New Hampshire. Not too <laughs> yeah, long you know? Yeah. Well, next time. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, great. Um, thank you very much. Hi. Okay, yeah, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye. Once again, big thanks to Chris Rial for coming out this week. Thanks. It was really fun. Yeah, I had a good time. But as we do at the end of each and every show, we, of course, need to plug ourselves. So, where can you find us? Everything is over at editorsnotecomics.com, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. If you want to get the show a week early, patreon.com slash editorsnotecomics, a minimum of a buck a month, will get you the show a week early every single month, because now we're on a monthly schedule. Yes, but you can also listen to our back archives, I guess. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of backlog on that back issue, Ben. 
Yeah. Mm. And the biggie, if you could rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, all of that helps the show become more visible so more people can find us and listen to these things. And that's about it. Yeah. There's another show, too. Oh, yeah. I do another show. Editor's Note Comics Podcast, a topical news and pop culture review show. With Jared, not me. I'm sure it's something about Infinity War right now, Whatever, either Patreon or non. Yes. Something to do with the Avengers. But we'll be back next month for something. So we'll talk to you then. It's definitely going to be about Buffy or Angel. Right. That's her whole <laughs> shtick. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But beyond that, we'll see you next month. Bye. Bye.